I invite you to stand and with your Bibles to turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. The reading is on page 880 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. And I misprinted the verses in, the, in our a bulletin. We're actually going to read verses 27 through 40. So as we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke, we now turn to Luke 20, 27 through 40. Hear now the word of the Lord spoken to you, his people. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Please be seated. And let's pray together. Lord God, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We ask that you would take this passage, make it clear to us. And especially, Lord, we pray that you would apply it to us so that we know how to live in this day and age as we wait for the life to come. Thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What happens after you die? How would you answer that question? What if we polled 20 people who came to the bus stop right out front of our church. How do you think they would all answer the question, what happens after you die? I I suspect that we would get a lot of different answers, you know, if we pulled 20 people. We, We might even get 20 different answers. Some might say, well, you're reincarnated. You, you, just, you have another chance. You pass on to another life, another form of existence, and around the cycle goes endlessly. And others might say, well, you know, I, I believe that nothing happens after you die. That's it. You, it's like you fall asleep and you're into nothingness. That's the answer we, we might hear increasingly more today from skeptics. 
But then there's all these answers kind of in the middle, you know, that we, we'd hear. Um, you know, other answers. You know, some folks would say, well, I think, I think what you do is you just kind of wander around as a spirit in this life until you're released. Or others would say, I, I think you become an angel. Doesn't the Bible say something about being like angels? There are lots of different answers that you would hear. What happens after you die? Well, how do you actually answer that question? Can we really know? Yes. You can know what happens at, what, what's going to happen after you die because Jesus has talked about it. Right here in this passage is one of those places where he, he is very clear about some things about what is going to happen to us after you die. In fact, it was the same way in Jesus' day. You asked a bunch of different people and they give different answers. We're about to see that in just a moment, that people didn't quite agree on what happens after you die. But Jesus speaks into that confusion with the clarity and, and the beauty and the conviction of God's word. You know, if you heard uh, this passage today and you say, oh, this is a tricky one. That's true. There's some tricky things about this passage. But I also want you to see Jesus is speaking about something that no one else can tell you about. No one else can come to you and say, hey, I know what happens after you die. Only Jesus from his word can tell you that. And that's what he's doing in this passage. And what I want you to see is that this passage points us to the answer the Bible gives. It's not reincarnation. It's not nothingness. It's not wandering around as a ghost or an angel. It's resurrection, bodily resurrection from the dead. That's the great hope of the gospel, and that's the hope of this passage, and it's the answer Jesus gives. We're going to see this as we first see a group of people ridiculing the resurrection, making fun of the resurrection, and then we're going to see our Savior redeeming the resurrection, reaffirming it. All right, let's listen to these folks who come ridiculing the resurrection. The Sadducees come and Jesus says, they are those who deny that there is a resurrection. Now think about the context that we're in. If you've been with us uh, weeks before leading up to this, you've seen we're in a little bit of a mini series, right? And that mini series is Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. That's where he's come to suffer and die for sinners. But before he goes to that cross willingly, he undergoes one, I guess you could say, final test from the religious authorities. And that test comes in the form of three questions meant to try to trip Jesus up, to put him on the cross before he's ready to go to the cross. And this one is cooked up by the Sadducees. First, we had one that was cooked up by all the religious leaders. And then you had some step forward and say, hey, do we need to pay taxes to Caesar? trying to trick him with a political question. And then the third question here is nothing else than a religious question, and it's cooked up, it's simmered by the Sadducees. Now, who are the Sadducees? Well, they were a group of people. You know, think today you've got different denominations uh, and you've got different, you know, political groups and it was similar in Jesus's day. You had the Pharisees and they, they were the, the, the big shots, you could say. But you also had a powerful voice coming from this group of people called the Sadducees. And these were uh, folks who only believed in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, 
Uh, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Sorry, I did that out of order. I apologize, but (laughs) you get the picture, right? Uh, The first five books of the Bible is all the Sadducees believed in. And because of this, they looked over those first five books and says, we're just not convinced that there's a resurrection from the dead. We, We don't see it. We don't see it talked about in the first five books. So when you say people are gonna be raised bodily on the last day, Pharisees, you're going beyond the scriptures. In seminary, I learned a clever way to remember this. You, you might know where I'm going. The, here's how you re- remember that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They are a people who are sad, you see, because they have no resurrection hope. That's, I know, really corny. But, but that's, that's how you remember this. This is their defining mark. And so here they come and they say, oh, of course, the Pharisees, they're not going to trip Jesus up, but we've got, we've got the way to do it. We're going to ask them about the resurrection because Jesus has been talking about the resurrection. He clearly believes in it. And we don't believe it's in the Bible. And we believe we can show them it's not in the Bible. So they cook up this story, right? You've heard it. It's a story about one woman who marries seven brothers. Now, how does that happen? Well, you know, in Jewish law at the time, you go back to Deuteronomy 25. We're not going to go there. But if you were to turn to Deuteronomy 25.5, you'd see that built into the law of Moses, built into the law of God is this provision that, you know, if, if a woman dies childless, um, or sorry, if, if, if uh, the husband of a wife dies and she's childless, then the responsibility of taking up that, uh, that man's responsibility and bearing children that are going to bring an inheritance and a long name in Israel, that responsibility fell to the next brother in line in his family. And, and what, what was this all about? It was about preserving a good name, upholding an inheritance, because it was considered a curse if you died childless and your name just you know, fell off. You know, there's no more Dietrichs in the land. And so built into the law of Moses was this provision that you know, the responsibility fell to you, brother of your, your older deceased brother, to come and to marry his um, living wife and to bear children. And so here's this crazy story where that happens seven times because none of the brothers actually, you know, give children to, to this woman. I mean, you think when you're like the fifth or sixth brother, you think, wow, you know, it's a lot of, <laughs> it's not a good track record of people marrying this woman and then dying. But um, so, so here's the question, you know, you've got this provision of, of this, you know, these brothers marrying uh, this woman and so the Sadducees ask, if that's the case, and if it's possible for a, um, a woman to be married to seven different brothers over the course of her life, and all of them having died, then when she dies, who's she married to in heaven? Who's her husband? Because Moses taught that husband marries one wife, right? And that it's until death do us part. So here you have this situation where you know, it's, it's designed to make the resurrection look ridiculous. It's designed for people to say, oh, you know, of course the resurrection can't be true because it results in all these silly, absurd situations where people are married to all these different people in the life to come. 
And so the Sadducees say, now we've got him. He's not going to be able to answer this one. We've stumped him. What I want you to see is that this isn't just a question cooked up by the Sadducees. No, this is a question, a clever question, that is cooked up by men by the design of Satan himself. We saw this last week. These three questions come as a test, not not ultimately from men, but from Satan, who is trying to trip up Jesus on his way to the cross. This isn't just some parlor debate. This is a crucial question. Is Jesus going to fall to Satan or is he going to be faithful to God all the way to the cross? We know this because there's another place in the book of Luke where there's three questions that come as a test to Jesus. It's earlier in the book of Luke when Jesus was asked three questions in the wilderness by Satan. Three times he tried to trip him up. Three times Jesus stood faithful. It's happening again as the cross looms higher and higher above Jesus, as he gets closer and closer to that ultimate destiny that he's come to do, Satan wants to trip him up. And now he's using these religious authorities to try to do it. And so everything hinges. How is Jesus going to answer this? Is this a knot he can't untie? Is he finally finished? Is his reputation ruined in the eyes of the people? Or is he going to prove faithful as he has up to this point? And what we see is Jesus masterfully redeems the resurrection. That's the second point I want you to see. He upholds it. He dignifies it. He shows that it is embedded in scripture. That's important for you to hear, isn't it? As a people whose hope lies in the resurrection. If all we have in this life is this life and the things that are here, what does Paul say? Then we are most miserable. There's no resurrection from the dead. So listen to Jesus as he dignifies and upholds the resurrection and redeems it. First of all, he tells these Sadducees what the resurrection is like. That's the first question we need to ask. What is the resurrection like? What's it like on that last day when we'd be raised bodily? And Jesus exposes this fundamental problem that's embedded in the question he's asked. The story that the Sadducees have cooked up is completely off base because it assumes that the life to come is just like this life now. That the life to come has more in common with this life. But that's, that's a problem because what Jesus teaches us here is that the life to come, the resurrection life, is different Have you ever wondered what it's going to be like into eternity when we're raised bodily? Jesus says, it is, yes, there are so many things that are in common with this life now, but don't miss that it is a fundamentally different age. It's not like this age. we, We don't just go to heaven, right? That's what sometimes we talk about. We say, well, you know, when I go to die, I'm going to go, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And there's truth to that. But what Jesus says is that the life to come fundamentally is different and change. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it's a passage about the resurrection. If you look at verse 51, he says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, 
but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. You see it there, right? The life to come is a transformative life that brings us into a mode of existence that's just different. There's no easier way to say these things. You know, Jesus puts it this way, we'll be like the angels. Now you hear that and you say, oh yeah, I think I've heard something about this. You know, we'll, we'll be flying around on clouds on angels' wings. Now, I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says we'll be like angels. Jesus explains to us what it means that we'll be like angels. First of all, those new bodies we're going to have are going to be imperishable. We can't die. Just like the angels can't die. We'll never be able to die. And that's an amazing truth, isn't it? I mean, how, it's mind-boggling. Can you imagine you know, our, 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 our ashes, our bodies, whatever state they're in when Jesus returns? Jesus is going to dignify and redeem those bodies taking all of those particles and molecules and transforming them into a beautiful resurrection body. Paul says this, the body that is sown in weakness is raised in power. The body that is sown in dishonor is raised in honor and glory. And the perishable will put on the imperishable. And so we'll be like those angels where there is no more pain and death and suffering. That's the age to come. It's beautiful. But Jesus says more. We'll also be like the angels in that we will have new relationships. Specifically, there will be no more marriage. You hear that. If you're like me, you say, okay, this, this actually could trip me up. I don't like this. Neither do the, the Mormons, by the way. Mormons will teach you that when, when you're married in, in the temple, in a temple ceremony, it's forever. It's forever and ever and ever. And they think, isn't that great? You love your spouse. Isn't this great? It dignifies marriage right now so that it just goes on and on. And you, you know, you, why would you want to divorce? And, you know, if it's, it's going to go on forever. And so here's the thing. Jesus has a different answer than that. And we have to reckon with this. This is hard. Um, many good friends of mine have asked me this question. Does Jesus really teach that there will be no marriage? I think when we, when we look at this passage, we see he does teach something just like that. What does he say? He says there will no longer be any giving in marriage. And he, he's, he's giving this as a solution to this problem. Right? The problem cooked up by the Sadducees that there's one woman married to seven men. Jesus says, you don't get it. It's not going to be the same in the age to come. It's going to be different. Marriage as we know it, with all of its beautiful focus on bearing children and raising children and being a family, all of that is going to fade away. that troubles you as it sometimes troubles me why would that be troubling it's because marriage can be such a beautiful thing it can be it can be such an enjoyable thing 
a delightful reality. We love our spouse. We say, wow, if this just went on forever and just got better and better, that would be awesome. But you know what Jesus says? He says, marriage was never meant to endure forever. Our earthly marriage is actually a picture of something greater. It is a symbol, a type of of the marriage of Christ to his church. The better marriage to come. And so Jesus is calling you to enjoy your marriages now, but to enjoy them with an eye to the age to come, saying, ah, things will be different. And that's good because guess what? They're going to be even better, even better. The best is yet to come. Now, if you're single in this life, this text comes as an encouragement, right? I mean, if, if you go through your whole life, equipped by God to not, uh, to, to not be married to someone, then you look at this passage and you say, this is encouraging. It means that I am dignified in my singleness and that the Lord says to me that marriage is not the ultimate thing, but my marriage to Christ, the Christ's marriage to the church, that's ultimate. And so I can go through this life dignified in Jesus and not feeling like I'm second class because I'm not married. So we, we all need to hear this passage and be pricked and encouraged because Jesus says there's a reality coming and it is far more important than the reality that now. Why? Because he says you are going to be sons and daughters of the resurrection. That's a reality that just overshadows everything in this life and beautifies it and makes it all worth it. Jesus says this, that the age to come is wonderful and worthwhile. It is not like this world of temporary pleasures and fleeting passions. So I ask you, here's a question for you. Are you sons and daughters of the resurrection? How do you become a son and daughter of the resurrection? You look to the one who was raised from the dead and you lay a hold of him by faith. You say, Jesus, I need you and your resurrection power. Make me a son or a daughter of the resurrection. My life is trending towards death. Everything about it is death-like. Give me life and trend me towards life, Jesus, by the power of your resurrection. And then in Christ, we will be considered worthy of that resurrection to come. And so I ask you a second question. If you're sons and daughters of the resurrection, are you living like that's true? Are you living like sons and daughter of the resurrection? What does it look like to live like sons and daughters of the resurrection? It looks like living without fear of death. Without living petrified by fear that someone or something could take your life but instead living with that confidence that if we were to die, even then we would go to be with the Lord and have the hope of that resurrection. You see, that's a hope that outshines anything this world could give you. Here's another thing. Here's another way that it would look like to live like sons and daughters of the resurrection right now. It looks like living in such a way that we don't have to prove our worthiness in this life. You know, I've talked to many people when they know they're near the end of their life, when they know that the end is coming. 
they start to desperately try to show how worthy they are. Look at all I've done. Look at what I've created. Look at, look at the family I've established. And, the, and, the, and they, they try to show you, you know, I'm worthy. I've, I've, I've worked hard in this life. I'm enough. But I want to propose to you, that is a sadisty way of thinking about things. It's a very sad way of thinking about things, in fact. Because our worthiness does not lie in this life. It doesn't lie in your career. It doesn't lie in your religious knowledge. It doesn't lie in the empire you've built or the family you've established. Your worthiness lies in Jesus Christ and being found in him. And in the age to come. That's our true hope. Here's the amazing thing that Jesus is actually teaching us. And notice, he's going right at the throat of the Sadducees' greatest problem. They are a people who find their hope in this life only. There's no resurrection. This is all there is. But Jesus says, when we really accept that the best is yet to come, that the age to come is better than this life now, guess what? It makes you better spouses. You're freed to not you know, selfishly idolize your spouse, but instead you're freed to say, the best is yet to come. I don't have to get my best from them. I'm going to love them for who they are. You know? And so you're freed to do that, free to be a good spouse, one who doesn't selfishly try to secure life from your your spouse, but one who is actually free to say, you know, the best is yet to come. And I'm going to enjoy that best with them. It also makes you better friends, better citizens. If, if we're not trying to squeeze everything we can out of this life, like a lemon, you know, then, then guess what? We're actually free to enjoy this life for what it's meant to be, a, a temporary preparation for the life to come. You see how that works? You're not trying to, 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 to make this life something it's not. You can actually enjoy it for what it is. I saw today this package of candy corn. And the package of candy corn said that it had a particular flavor. It was, it was a turkey dinner, apple pie, and coffee-flavored candy corn. Wow. Now, that's disgusting. <laughs> That's not what candy corn is designed to be. Candy corn is designed to be this seasonal treat that, you know, at least I enjoy in moderation. It's not meant to be a turkey dinner, apple pie, coffee. It's just candy corn. But here's the thing. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us in the Sadducees. When we try to make this life something it's not, when we try to squeeze out of this life Flavors that it's not meant to give. We actually won't enjoy it. It'll actually become disgusting to us. So live as a people who are waiting for the life that is to come, the better life, and enjoy this life for what it is, a a preparation for the resurrection. How do we know all this is true? That's the second question I want to ask. I'm going to close with this. All of that is good and well. That's, that's beautiful. A new body, a new status, new identity in Christ. You know, better than this life now. Sign me up. How do you know it's not? How do you know it's not fake? How do you know it's not wishful thinking? 
Well, Jesus tells you. He says, it's true because our God is the God of the living. Notice what Jesus does. He takes us to Exodus chapter three. Now, Jesus could have gone to anywhere in the Bible. And let me just tell you, there are really clear passages about the resurrection. Why does he go to Exodus? I think one of the reasons is the Sadducees believe the first five books of the Bible and they wouldn't accept others. And so Jesus is saying, you're wrong, but let me step into your perspective and show you from the first five books that you're wrong. Well, let's go to Exodus. But the second reason I think Jesus goes here is he's showing us that our hope in the resurrection is actually embedded in the very nature of who God is. It's not just a few isolated proof texts that we could find. We believe in the resurrection because we believe in God. Let me show you how this is the case. How does God introduce himself in Exodus chapter three? He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now notice, not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those guys, those, those, uh, those men, they had been dead for hundreds of years. So why is God speaking of of being their God in the present? Why is he saying, I am their God? Well, it's only possible if God is still the God of of those long dead patriarchs. His name only has meaning if those men are actually alive to God beyond the grave. If they have a hope that outshines death and they are actually in that moment as God announces his name to Moses in the present of the God who calls them to wait for the final resurrection. You see, here's what I want you to see from this passage. This is the key. God's relationships last forever. Once the eternal God binds himself to you, nothing can sever that bond. That's what Romans 8 says. Nothing can separate us from God, not even death, angels, nor demons, nor life, nothing. The God of the living, the God who has eternal life within himself, when he pledges himself to you to be your Lord, he says, death itself cannot hold you down. I will be your God forever. I will raise you from the dead. What an encouragement that is, isn't it? Your God is the God of the living, not the dead. May that be the song of your heart whenever death rears its ugly head and scares you and makes you tremble. You can say to death, my God is the God of the living. And when you, when you think of your loved ones who have died in the Lord, when you miss them, when you long to know how they are, again, that song of your heart is, their God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That's your hope. It's the hope of your loved ones that have died in the Lord. You want to know the ultimate proof of this? How do you really know it's true? Well, Jesus was about to show the Sadducees how it's ultimately true because he was about to go to the cross and he was about to die. And then the very moment where everyone thought that's the end of him, guess what? He rose again from the dead and light flooded the empty tomb. The empty tomb is the ultimate answer to the Sadducees' question. Because guess what? Once you are united to Jesus 
in a death like his, you are surely united to him in a life like his. Once God in Jesus Christ pledges and binds himself to you, death cannot hold you down, but you have an empty tomb ahead of you. The Sadducees hear this answer and they are silent. The scribes, who are the Pharisees, they say, nice work, Jesus, you hand it to them. But guess what? Next week, Jesus is coming for the scribes because they have issues of their own. But what Jesus leaves you and I with is not only his masterful answer that triumphs over his enemies and over Satan, but also a pledge. He says, my empty tomb is your empty tomb because God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Assure us of that promise of life from the dead. Give us hope that lasts forever beyond the grave. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.